This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Kicking people out of your game. Sandy Peterson's original vision for Call of Cthulhu. Wrong opinions and how not to have them. And the Cuban Missile Crisis. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. We begin with the familiar site of the gaming hut on the horizon. And as we enter the gaming hut, today's topic is when, if ever... Is it okay to kick someone out of your gaming group? Uh, we've all, I think both of us have, at 8 million different panels, have been asked 8 million different questions, uh, all of which of the form of the classic Jack Benny routine, uh, Robin and Ken, it hurts when my game does this, and our response is always, well, don't do that. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there's always sort of... A and basically, the who, who do I or, or when is it okay to throw a guy out of my group question is the final stage uh, of which the initial stage is what do I do about this guy in my group? Uh, and this is someone who obviously the questioner has identified as being dysfunctional and wishes our assistance in rendering functional. And there's always advice to give uh, whatever the issue is. But ultimately, if that advice doesn't work, then the uber-level advice on top of that is, well, uh, maybe you should reconsider why it is that you're having fun playing with this person, or are you having fun? And uh, if not, would you, for example, on poker night, if you played poker every week with a bunch of people and one person was consistently disruptive and ruined everyone's fun, would you feel constrained somehow in the same way to uh, stop inviting him as you would in gaming? Is there something about role-playing gaming or about the social contract of the geekosphere that makes things any different from any other pursuit, right? If there's somebody, if you guys all have a movie night and everybody goes out to movie night together and you're all people who dislike talking in movies and one of the people who comes along with you always talks during the movie, well, chances are you're going to stop inviting them. Now, that's not a case where you're sending them an email, breaking up with them as your movie pal. You just kind of gradually not let them know that it's happening. If you've got a regular game session, you do have that awkward social confrontation, which those of our ilk dislike. But uh, ultimately, if we're talking about someone who is really, really making things not fun for you, as opposed to someone whose uh, taste can sort of be uh, adjusted so that they dovetail more with everybody else's desires, uh, th that's when you kick somebody out. Yeah, I think that the um, it's sort of the, the larger question, you know, uh, it, it seems tautological to say it, but the time to kick someone out of the gaming group is when their, their antics or their uh, damage or whatever it happens to be get in the way of making the game fun every week. And 
if it's a one-time thing or if it just happens when they've, you know, had a bad day at work, then everyone has a bad day and you can work around it. But if it's a constant uh, habit of gaming or, or a thing that they do uh, that is the, equi- the gaming equivalent of talking during the movie, then you're really kind of, uh, you know, with, without a recourse. I mean, you can either play a game that is the sort of game that if it were a movie, no one would mind if you talked during, but that is less than optimal for a lot of people, especially uh, uh, people as, as we get older and have less free time and the game night becomes more of a, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a break from reality than it is when you're in high school or college and everything is free time anyway. But I think that, it, it, you know, if, if by the time you've gotten to that age, you haven't learned how to deal with uh, social awkwardness, then you may have bigger problems than my game group is dysfunctional. At some point, you just have to say, you know, give give the example of, you know, if you cheated in poker, we wouldn't invite you back in for poker night. If you um, uh, talked during the movie, we wouldn't invite you to movie night. We're happy to have you along for bowling night, but uh, as uh, role-playing games go, you don't seem to be into what we want to do, so there you go. The most recent time I got this question, uh, you know, it started out with a, what do you do with someone who's consistently disruptive? And I asked it you know, for a description of what that behavior was. And it really was just there always focusing it on them and always uh, disrupting what everybody else is doing. And they are completely PVP oriented. And I said, so what is it that you think this person wants that that is their tactic for getting it? And then the answer was, well, we all think that he has a borderline personality disorder. (laughs) And uh, it's hard to think of other social subgroups. Maybe it's Maybe this is just my own narrowness of vision where you would feel obligated to continue on with this person because it is not your role to be an unlicensed therapist to someone who is actually really deeply troubled and taking it out on you. Uh, You are not a member of their family, presumably. Uh, And so if it really is a, a level of that extreme where they are basically taking advantage of an entire group of people week after week, that's not something that's amenable to uh, sitting down and discussing, oh, maybe we should add a little more combat to the uh, game, or maybe uh, you should give everybody else a little more focus time. That's basically someone taking advantage not only of that group of people, but of the general geeky fear of engaging in anything that resembles ostracism. And that is very laudable on a lot of levels. And it comes from the fact that role-playing gamers are kind of a band of outsiders or see themselves as such, although that's increasingly changing as uh, geek culture in general and and even uh, hobby gaming become more mainstream. uh, It's still uh, something that I would suggest is, you know, you're basically allowing people to take advantage of you in a new different way. If your code against ostracism is so extreme that you can't separate you from people who are basically, uh, you know, on a low level, certainly, but they're, they're abusing you. Yeah, I think, um, obviously, yeah, if, if you've got someone with a genuine medical problem, then that's a different question. And yeah, you're, you're right. I'm sure that there are gaming groups, including the one that was uh, asking you the question, who find themselves in that sort of a situation. But I'd, I'd hesitate to let, you know, Dr. Google diagnose some one with a mental disorder when they're actually just a consummate jerk who always gets their way because their friends are pushovers. And you want those people out of your gaming group also because they're jerks. And yes, it's really an, an academic question. And if 
they're just a jerk, but by telling yourself that they have a personality disorder, that gives you the mental clarity necessary to disinvite them. Uh, maybe that's a, a necessary delusion. Yeah, I mean, if that if if, if that is your required version of uh, a mantra, then I guess go ahead and recite it. It just seems to me that you know, jerk is a more than suitable reason not to hang around with someone, especially in a in an environment that requires that kind of and that degree of cooperation to be successful. I mean, it it, it really is different if they come along to to bowling night or they come along to the to, to the baseball game or whatever, because there are plenty of activities that if you enjoy their company, you know, um, you know, talking during movies, then you can go out and talk during the movies, you know, all you want, as long as you don't do it in a movie theater that I'm in. But the, but the question of, you know, a role-playing game, which is so much a collaboration between all the players together, they should all be working together. The, the default assumption should not be, you know, um, how do I convince everyone in a role-playing game to work together? That, that that seems ridiculous. It's like, if we're going to put on a play, how do I convince all the actors to take roles and the set guy to build a set? I mean, that's what they're all there to do, in theory. And I'm always a little bit baffled by this. I mean, we've had our share of interpersonal drama and, and various excitements, especially in my younger days, but a lot of it was down, basically, to people having interpersonal, uh, you know, ability to get along with each other. It wasn't that anyone was deliberately trying to sabotage the game. It was that out, out of game stuff made it harder to play uh, convincingly in game. And that's a different question. Right. And there, and there certainly are lots of groups where the fact that everybody in the group is a longtime friend, and this is their chance to hang out together overrules the separate quality of just the gaming experience that you're getting together to get together. And what you're doing is playing a role playing game. And if, uh, Jimmy is a little uh, pushy and steals focus, and if uh, Janie rambles a lot, those are things you are going to accept because they are your friends, and the friendship comes above the role-playing experience, and that's perfectly understandable. Uh, how you deal with that in the long term depends on to what extent people are corrigible, to what extent you can uh, ever get anyone to change their habits or just a matter of your accepting the fact that uh, Jimmy seizes uh, control more than 20% of the time and whenever Janie starts talking, you want her to uh, wrap it up quicker than she's prepared to wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like every other collaborative uh, field. You know, the whole reason to collaborate is because you want everyone involved in whatever it is. And you know, if Jimmy conversely is really, really good at coming up with off the wall uh, methods for fighting orcs or escaping from dungeons, and Janie is really, really good at um, you know uh, improvised magic or uh, player or in player negotiations and things like that, then that's just you know part of the penalty you pay. It's just like you know if you've got a a band and the drummer you know has you know a, a tendency to come in early. You know, you either get a new drummer or you change up your, your chord structure such that the drummer is, is once again contributing. I mean, it, it's all a, a matter of give and take and compromise. All of it is. And, uh, your own particular, uh, set of, of gaming habits are also probably, you know, not, uh, the ideal one from the perspective of everyone in the universe, but your friends are all putting up with, you know, your habit of, of, you know, overthinking the map or whatever it happens to be. And how uh, much you choose to engage with 
the peccadilloes of people who you want to hang out with is often a matter of casting the game experience in the right way so that if you have a group of people who are generally sort of undirected, where you've got people who prefer to sort of kibitz or to uh, shoot down ideas that everybody else has, you might uh, do better with a sort of a picaresque game where you expect a level of uh, undermining and uh, comic incompetence to a sort of a serious kind of sandbox game where everybody has to work together toward a goal. So you don't do the super grim survivalist game with a group of uh, cut-ups who mostly just want to sort of riff off each other and uh, zing each other. Yeah, and again, that I think comes down to knowing your group and knowing what what their comfort level is and what their uh, play speed is. And it, one of the good things about uh, the current sort of uh, mini golden age of, of design is that there are more and more games coming out that are fitting more and more types of play experience and more and more types of, of the specific emotional content or the specific uh, interpersonal content that you're looking for. So uh, you can play Dying Earth uh, for your uh, players who like to zing each other and undercut each other constantly, or you can play uh, Call of Cthulhu for players who are really into sort of building in a shared emotional moment of horror, or you can play um, Sorcerer for people who like following their own characters on an intellectual um, uh, uh, fall into Shakespearean tragedy. There's a lot of different you know, feels out there, and you can tailor your game towards those, or, you know, play enough different games enough different times that no individual person's individual idiosyncrasies undermine the game every single time. Now, as a designer who gets playtest reports back from people for all of the different role-playing games I design, I will sometimes see a response of, we have this person in our group who, uh, you know, is category whatever of dysfunctional player, and your rules did not do enough to constrain them. Uh, we, we want you to create rules that, you know, prevent Jimmy from being a scene hog. And my response always is to discount that just because I can't, first of all, tailor a game to every, if you tailor a game to constrain every dysfunctional game habit, you wind up with a game that is extremely constraining and you constrain way more than just that dysfunctional play style, you make the game a lot more difficult and unwieldy for everybody because it is coming from a position of distrust in the players, where the players are trying to get away f uh, with something, and you and the GM in, in partnership have to squish them. And you even see, you know, there are rule sets and particularly sets of examples where you will read where that is the governing assumption, is that the uh, the players are an unruly force, which the uh, GM in tandem with the uh, designer must work to whack-a-mole. Yeah, I, S. John Ross used to quote uh, to good effect the old saying that you can never make anything foolproof because fools are too smart. <laughs> uh, the, you know, but again, you can look at games that do constrain those behaviors. If, if someone's a scene hog, you play a game that involves uh, an explicit rotation of scene power, like uh, Polaris. If someone is, you know, uh, too um, uh, apt to lose uh, attention and, and not pay attention during the backstory. You play a game with no real backstory uh, that that is purely you know about in the moment action, uh, like um, you know a, a good old fashioned dungeon crawl. Uh, there's there's all manner of of different possibilities, and it again asking a designer to design a game for your specific gaming group 
is obviously uh, well. It's it's mostly bootless. I I suppose you know my gaming group could probably try it, but the um, but the chances of it working, you know, like you said, on a commercial level are are pretty slim. And again, more of this is the job of the other players and the game master uh, to create that experience with the uh, material that they do have at hand than it is the job of the designer to build a game that automatically always plays well. Uh, there being pretty much no examples of that in role-playing. Yeah, I always design uh, assuming that the game is being run for a group that it is, is well-suited for, uh, because otherwise you're just starting off with something very specific that is supposed to work in a particular way and then just diluting it down uh, so that it appeals to everyone. And in process of that, of course, like most artistic works that you uh, dilute uh, winds up appealing to very few people. The, you know, there are a few cases of games where you uh, design efforts where you do have to broaden your sectors so that you're reaching as many possible different taste groups as possible. For example, you know, the new version of D and D that they're working on. That's their explicit goal. Uh, but even there, there are going to be groups for whom that is not the ideal. And if you have uh, an unruly but uh, manageable uh, collaboration, you'd need to look really carefully at the game that hits everybody's uh, sweet spot. So if you're going to uh, be content with a group of people that are sort of like uh, cats in need of herding, uh, the solution to that is to be uh, very accommodating yourself. And if you don't want to do either thing, well, that's a classic cake and eating it too problem. Right. Yeah, there's um, and, and this is, I think, where you were getting back to the notion that a, a picaresque game or a game with a lot of different uh, flavors and options is maybe the best thing to do with uh, players who all have different sort of goals and approaches. And you have a sort of an unspoken or even maybe spoken, if you have to do it, understanding that in you know this uh, game, you know one adventure is going to really play to Jimmy's uh, tendency to scene hog and one adventure is really going to play to Janie's tendency to drama. And the next adventure is really going to play to Khalid's tendency to um, uh, uh, get off on planning the heist. And it's just going to keep going that way. And everyone's going to have their own little star turn, just like, you know, on Star Trek. You know, one episode is going to be about Chekhov and one episode is going to be about Ahura and all the others are going to be about Kirk and Spock. And just as you stop inviting the uh, guy who comes to your dinner party in order to get drunk and pick a fight you still ultimately have to stop inviting the guy who shows up just to subvert what everybody else is doing. Yeah, the, um, the, the, there's a difference in the guy who, who, who shows up to spoil gameplay and the guy who shows up to, um, uh, what, what you said, subvert the game in practice because a lot of people's notion of gameplay is that sort of, you know, uh, you're all playing cowboys in the West. Uh, all right, I'm the samurai. You know, it's... They, someone always wants to be the ninja, and the, the that that the, that Scooby model of player is just going to be a constant factor. And the sort of the downside is, or the upside, I guess, if look at it positively, is that player is often really creative. And once they figure out how their ninja gets into the cowboy west, is more involved in making the setting come alive for everyone because they have to keep it real for themselves. Right. That guy has a specific sort of fun in mind that he is not necessarily thinking about how it fits into everybody else's fun. And he's sort of offloading the effort 
of integrating that onto you, but that's a far different thing than the guy I think we've all uh, run into at times who's either showing up in order to vent his psychological issues or just mess with everybody else and who's uh, gets his uh, sense of enjoyment from uh, kind of slyly ruining it for everybody. And, and uh, you know, whether that is something, you know, if somebody is ruining the game for everybody, whether it is their uh, conscious intent or their uh, unconscious impulses coming out, at the end of the day, the result on you is still the same. And I would still advise that, you know, when it, if it does get that bad, by all means, assert yourself and be self-protective. Now, there's a bit of additional awkwardness. And, you know, if there's a weekly event and you, you actually have to tell somebody to leave rather than, you know, you used to invite this guy to your dinner parties and now you don't. But again, uh, it's like sometimes a production of Hamlet. You have to uh, kick out the guy who uh, won't learn his lines and is busy flirting with the stagehands. Yeah, the as you alluded to earlier with your cake and eat it too statement, you know, you can't have everything in this world and you certainly can't have uh, good relationships with everyone that you would like to have good relationships, especially when they're not particularly interested in that. And they're more interested in some sort of uh, drama of which they are the constant and never change and ever uh, focused star. It's just, it's not, it's not going to be worth your time. And more to the point, it's not going to be worth the time of the other three people who are sitting around the table waiting for your titanic battle of wills to finish. And on that note of uh, sensible fatalism, we shall kick ourselves out of the gaming hut and move on to our next segment. And now it's time once again for Ask Ken and Robin, our ever-popular segment, if you want to leave a question for Ken and Robin, just go to our uh, website at www.kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com and leave a question in the comments to any episode posting, and we will find it. Uh, in this case, the question comes from Jason Bretti. In a recording of a presentation Ken gave at a convention, he said that Sandy Peterson's first edition of Call of Cthulhu was more loyal or adhered more closely to Lovecraft's view of the mythos. I was wondering if Ken could explain this further. What changed in the later editions to move away from Lovecraft's original vision? What parts adhere most closely to Lovecraft's original vision? Well, uh, first, I think that uh, Jason may have uh, misapprehended what I said at the uh, panel, because it was not the first edition as published. It was Sandy Peterson's first draft of Call of Cthulhu that had that degree of, of nihilistic pessimism that is uh, so fundamental to Lovecraft. The, the major differences were that you could never regain sanity, for example. Uh, and that, uh, mechanically, is, is the biggest single difference between Sandy's version of uh, the first draft of Call of Cthulhu and what eventually got published. And I believe it was Lynn Willis who pushed back and said, this game is going to end in tears every time, unless there's some way to at least pretend to climb up the wall of a volcano there. And I think that probably... Um, later evidence, you know, certainly, you know, you can't argue with success and San and, uh, Sandy's and Lynn's version had a great deal of success, uh, immediately. Another difference in Sandy's first draft was that the gods didn't have, uh, hit points, that there was no, um, uh, stats for them, that they acted more like the gods in, uh, the earlier versions of RuneQuest, where they gave you various attributes because you were associated with them, not, uh, that they, you know, were just physical entities. Now, in a way, this is less true to Lovecraft's vision, because Lovecraft, uh, it, at varying times during the stories, 
indicated that uh, Cthulhu, for example, is a physical entity, or that um, Yogg-Sothoth at least has enough of an earthly presence to breed children upon it, uh, things like that. But I think that in terms of the mechanics reflecting what Lovecraft's philosophical goals were, that a, a god you can kill and take uh, Mjolnir from is different from a god that you can maybe drive a boat through, but it doesn't actually do anything in the long term, that he still slumbers beneath his um, uh, sunken island or whatever. Although I guess you do need some sort of mechanical rules for running your boat through him, even though you are only just sort of slowing him down rather than killing him. Again, I suspect that those rules come in an individual scenario uh, based on the the story, which admittedly, I believe Sandy did put into uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth. The, uh, there is a bit where Riley rises, and I'm it's been eons since I played it, uh, but I'll bet that there's a, 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 a boat rule somewhere in there. Uh, but simply saying, you know, in the write-up of Cthulhu, uh, Cthulhu is a transcendent entity who seeped down from the stars, from the uh, Smargard triple stars off in the uh, unguessable vigintillions of years in the Jurassic era, and takes times four damage from boat. Is <laughs> I, I would argue uh, more more damaging to the the flavor and the and the feel of Lovecraft, even if it may or may not be an actual. Uh, representation of the uh, quotidian events of the story. Right. And and you can certainly envision the conversation that brought the game to something that people were more familiar with, which is, we should make this something people are more familiar with. Gamers have a set of expectations, and you're messing with too many of them at once, and let's dial this down and give them what they expect here in order that they can accept this bit here and this bit here, and then maybe you know, 20 years from now, somebody else can come along once the weird things you're doing are accepted wisdom and claw back some of these other things that we've done in order to uh, win acceptance from gamers who come at it now from their present set of expectations. Yeah, I, th- I think that, um, you know, the, obviously, you, you would have to be considerably more arrogant a designer than I am to say that uh, Lynn's pushback on Sandy's first draft was wrong. Uh, given how great uh, first edition Call of Cthulhu was right out of the box, given how great th- those early source uh, books were and the early scenarios were, and the huge success that it had and still has, I, I think that it's obvious that, you know, in-, in the sense of make the game more familiar to players back in 1981, that was a- absolutely maybe the right call to make. And even now, it's not like uh, Call of Cthulhu is a bad game, it's just less Lovecraftian. And again, even uh, Sandy Peterson introduced a, a sort of a Derlethian quality because he, uh, he was writing this as a combination of a Lovecraft game and a, a sort of a 1920s adventure game and wanted to put in, you know, more monsters. And if you're looking for more monsters and more spells, that's where Derleth is going to give them for you. And so would you in fact come down and argue that at least at the time that it was less faithful to Lovecraft than it could have been, but a better game? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, that's one of the reasons that when I did Trail of Cthulhu, I did not make uh, sort of uh, the, the Peterson model the default. I said that there are many different ways that you can play it, and the purest model in Trail of Cthulhu was my attempt to go back to the first Peterson draft, because it is, again, what I sort of see as, uh, as, as a game that is more in line with... Uh, the, the Lovecraft philosophy, and, but it's not, you know, I don't argue that the purest game is a better game than the pulp uh, game in Trail of Cthulhu, because that would be ridiculous. And I certainly uh, don't argue that uh, 
Call of Cthulhu uh, made any sort of compromise in terms of gameplay. Uh, and certainly if you are writing a role-playing game, you should compromise uh, the, its value as a philosophical textbook first and its value as a role-playing game second or never. So having split Call of Cthulhu in these two modes and your adaptation of it in Trail of Cthulhu, where you've uh, created both the purist path, which is more faithful to Lovecraft, and the pulpy path, which is more overtly uh, fun and adventurous on a standard of a game where you're fighting eldritch horrors and you're inevitably going to die. Do you have a sense of what percentage of people play one versus the other, and does that actually match with what they say they want? I try not to, you know, psychoanalyze players uh, in that way, and certainly anyone who's playing Call of Cthulhu has my benison, and if they're playing it wrong, they can just not tell me. But my in my instinct is uh, based on, on convention play and based on sales of various uh, supplements as I understand them, is that there is a constant audience for the sort of Jazz Age, Tommy Gun adventure Cthulhu that uh, uh, Steve Perrin and uh, Sandy Peterson and Lynn Willis produced in 1981, which, you know, fits so many different uh, flavors. It, it's, you know, the, the chocolate payday bar. Uh, it's salty and sweet and delicious and filling. It, it's every kind of thing that you want. And it's a really strong, really fun mode. And you can, the fact that you can add on to that, that sort of nihilistic lust mord of going mad and, and killing everyone is, is icing on the cake for a lot of people to mangle my dessert metaphors. The, and, and I, so I, I would, I would hesitate to say that that ever goes away. That I, I think that there are people who are playing that now, people playing it in 1981. And I don't know that it diminishes as a absolute percentage of players. I think that certainly, as we have come as a sort of society, both a nerd society and a more generally literary society, to any sort of understanding of what Lovecraft was actually trying to accomplish, more people have been interested in exploring, uh, for lack of a better term, the purest Lovecraftian mode of, of play. And certainly there were some early, uh, well, not that early by now, uh, mid-period uh, Cthulhu supplements, uh, Return to Dunwich uh, being one strong example, that uh, produced a sort of um, uh, of social horror, uh, existential crisis uh, adventure, as opposed to driving around, uh, blowing things up type gaming. And I, I think that that audience has probably grown, at least in initial estimation, as people become more and more familiar with what Lovecraft wanted. Now, how often they play that, and how often you can go back to that well before you either manage to burn yourself out of uh, Cthulhu role-playing altogether or, you know, go back to the sort of uh, more um, uh, friendly confines of um, machine guns and shoggoths is a different question. And certainly there are plenty of games, uh, Delta Green, you know, prim primary among them, that uh, straddle both of those worlds, that you have the, the um, sort of men's adventure glocks and breaking glass of the, of the pulp mode, and in most Delta Green adventures, you also have plenty of existential terror ladled in with both hands. So I, I, would, I would hesitate to say that uh, one has eclipsed the other or that one is uh, better. I, I would certainly never say one is better. But I think that just with the greater understanding of Lovecraft's philosophical goals and his methods in the stories, just as we've had better Lovecraft, I think we're getting 
more attention to purist play. I, I'm somewhat nervous that as we're talking about uh, pulp in Lovecraft that I'm hearing the whine of a uh, chainsaw in the background. So if uh, this episode suddenly cuts out with the strangled cries from uh, Robin, you'll know what happened. It's time for our occasional feature, which would you would think was a little more than occasional, given that it is that thing I always say, and this time it is that thing Robin always says about art and how to think about it. And Robin, how do we not have wrong opinions? So wrong opinions, of course, are, are everywhere, uh, nowhere uh, more so than in our current era of the internet, where you can type your wrong opinion in a broad variety of different venues. And so this thing that I always say was originally a thing that uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the 18th century writer and critic, uh, always used to say, but since he's no longer uh, saying it on account of him being from the 18th century, it is now a thing that I always say. And basically this is uh, his three questions of criticism when you evaluate a piece of art. And that those three questions are, what is this doing? How well does it do it? And was it worth doing? And by asking yourself that set of questions about anything that you want to critique, whether it's a game or a movie or a piece of music, you can then achieve a sense of separation from your own subjectivity and know what it is that you are talking about and therefore avoid various varieties of wrong opinion. For example, the uh, wrong opinion of betrayed expectations, where I went in thinking that this was going to be more of a space movie, and it turned out to be a romance. Well, that means it sucked. Uh, well, it means that you didn't like it, and it may mean that the uh, ad campaign deliberately fooled you in order to get you into the theater, but it doesn't mean that the actual thing itself betrayed its decision to be a space movie when really it was trying to be a romance. And so by asking these questions about anything, you can uh, move away from the whole question of personal taste. And when you achieve that separation from personal taste, when you get to uh, part three, you come to the broader psychological question or, or philosophical question of, was this a, a thing worth doing? And it may cause you to rank certain things above other things, something that was setting out to just be a fun chase movie and executed that really well. But then once you leave the theater, you're not going to think about it for the rest of your life the way you would Eight and a Half or The Seven Samurai. Uh, it may have still been worth doing, but it operates on a lower level of achievement than uh, those aforementioned films, the things that stick with you throughout your life and that every time you see them, you find something new in them. Well, I think that you and, and or Goethe have packed an awful lot into those three facets. I'll start by agreeing with uh, you both that confusing your own taste for artistic merit is always uh, chancy. Uh, the classic example that I use in my own uh, uh, sort of, you know, judgment is uh, Satyajit Ray, the Indian film director who produces 
masterpieces, uh, every, every, every work, uh, a, a classic, uh, that I find nigh unwatchable. I, I just don't, I'm not in sympathy with his viewpoint. I don't particularly care for the, his choices in, in pacing or mode. I'm not a giant fan of naturalism anyway. And, uh, even when Satyajit Ray is, is pitching, uh, a movie, a sort of a, a Hindi turn of the screw about a woman who may or may not be possessed by the goddess Kali, he manages to get all Satyajit Ray up in there and, uh, to my mind, uh, interfere with the delivery of, uh, of what I wanted out of, uh, the goddess Kali, but not obviously to make a, a bad film. And, uh, the fact that his film is not something that I enjoyed watching and that I, uh, having now seen four or five of his films, I can pretty much, you know, uh, excuse myself from advanced Satyajit Ray classes. Doesn't mean that Ray is an overrated filmmaker or that he's a bad filmmaker. What it means is that he is producing something that may be worth doing, but is not necessarily uh, going to reward me enough that it's worth my time in paying attention to it. And I actually feel the same way about uh, Ray in that he is a filmmaker that I respect without particularly... Uh, resonating with or finding a desire to go back and see more. And I think part of that is the pacing that you talk about. I'm also not a fan of slow cinema. I'm more forgiving toward uh, someone like him who is doing slow cinema in the 50s and 60s than people who are still doing it now. Uh, but obviously that's a matter, uh, even not necessarily of philosophy, but just of the way that you're brain works. And that's what makes us different as people, that some people respond to these slow uh, meditative films in a way that they uh, have a profound experience that sort of opens them up inside. And I find my attention drifting to whatever I have to do the next day. And that uh, does not mean that uh, Ray sucks, as you suggest, uh, nor does it mean that the films of, say, John Woo, uh, which I uh, quite enjoy, that if those people are condemning them on the basis of, well, those are just violent movies that are upsetting and, and they're too fast for me. Again, that is, uh, if kept as a subjective judgment, that's a simple statement of fact about you. But as a statement about the uh, work of art, you may, unless you have a uh, great argument for that third well, was it worth doing question, you may have a moral argument that convincingly precludes anyone from legitimately enjoying the films of John Woo, but I have yet to hear it. Well, I mean, again, you can certainly uh, draw uh, various comparisons, and I think it's that third box where there's a lot of uh, unpacking that, that can be done. Uh, for example, you look at uh, the films of, say, Rob Zombie, uh, which are, you know, set out uh, to accomplish exactly what they accomplished. They do it uh, remarkably well, uh, with as much um, uh, uh, gore and god-awfulness as uh, can be packed into a thing. And in the case, for example, of his uh, remake of Halloween, it absolutely did not need to be done, because Halloween A was already perfect, and B, uh, it uh, his remake uh, destroyed the, the valuable qualities that John Carpenter had put into his initial one. But you can't necessarily say that about his a uh, more loose uh, remake of, you know, I Spit on Your Grave or the other sort of grindhouse horror things because they didn't have any particular artistic merit to begin with. But the question is, is even a triumphal uh, Rob Zombie film going to amount to as much in that third box? And how does one or Goethe or Robin uh, differentiate uh, a fully successful Rob Zombie film uh, like a House of a Thousand Corpses from 
a even somewhat successful Satyajit Ray film that say like Deva, which you and I uh, both you know uh, saw but didn't particularly get a lot out of. Well, I, I think they do belong in in different categories, and one of them is uh, Ray is involved in a sort of a humanistic project, and he's uh, trying to open up people's perceptions and. Uh, Rob Zombie is trying to upset and delight you. And uh, depending on where you are in your life, uh, maybe uh, being upset and delighted uh, is a better experience to have, but certainly in terms of what it says about uh, actual life, is this something to do with reality? That's something I always give people points for, uh, even if ultimately I would prefer someone who tells me something about life in a magical, transcendent way that keeps me enraptured, rather than a way that has me thinking, oh boy, this pacing, oh man, oh boy, I wish there were more contrast in this image. So partly that's a matter of execution. You could argue that by today's standards, uh, someone who's practicing slow cinema is not actually executing well, and some days I, I do feel that way, uh, because it's an easier way to shoot, especially under... Uh, third world conditions where you just set up a camera and have the actors do things in real time. Uh, I don't find that engaging. And, and I could make a third stage argument for that uh, not being worth doing, especially today, because uh, I think that uh, that level of austerity and asceticism, that there is actually something wrong with it. And I would make a philosophical case against that. But it's you're going out of on more of a limb by making that case against these sort of uh, revered, super serious filmmakers as you would against a uh, unnecessary remake of a great horror film by a sometimes talented but lesser director like Rob Zombie. But again, when you start talking about you know applicability to uh, human questions, to be zombie advocate here for a second, I think that he would say something on the order of. Uh, painting human nature with the social conventions torn off the way that his films do is just as valuable uh, to us, given the you know fundamentals of human nature being brutal and cruel, as he would have it, uh, as any examination of human nature in an Indian peasant family in the 1940s or 50s would be, since there is not a chance in hell that we're going to be an Indian peasant family. But there is every chance that we may find ourselves face to face with the brutality and cruelty of the universe. And of course, that's actually the thing about the horror genre that I find really compelling is that often it, because it has this outer wrapper of uh, complete social uh, unrespectability, that they are able to uh, play with ideas and whether it's uh, political or psychological uh, that you don't see in other commercial filmmaking, and then often. Uh, the horror films of any era are more uh, subversive and telling and get at those human questions, albeit in a more symbolic coded way than certainly the middle brow dramas of whatever period, which are often uh, unwatchable 10 years later. Yeah. So I, I think that um, uh, Goethe to, or to my way of thinking is, is certainly one valuable uh, set of, of, of boxes to pack things out of or into and it's a valuable uh, set of questions to begin asking. But I would say that it is not necessarily as easy as uh, Goethe makes it sound, that uh, as certainly it may have been in the 18th century, but following uh, 
you know, actually a world that Goethe did a great deal to create intellectually, uh, a world in which there is no immediately externally uh, valid source of what is worth doing, that you find yourself in a real pickle. Well, I'm not sure if Goethe thought that he was making things easy, except in the general way that heavyweight intellectuals of the Enlightenment thought that they were figuring things out, because certainly that uh, the first question is pretty simple. Uh, the second question, uh, you can work backwards from your responses to a piece of art and then find the technical qualities that either succeed or fail, but it's in that third question that you have a lifetime of contemplation. Yeah, and I think that um, Aristotle might argue that uh, Goethe is sort of um, uh, begging the question there, because the real question uh, of a philosopher or indeed possibly of someone who really wants to be engaged with the culture uh, as a consumer or a creator is precisely what exactly is worth doing and how do we know? And Goethe uh, does not give us an awful lot of guideline in this particular uh, example unless he's making the sort of William Morris type argument that anything done well and beautifully is worth doing by definition. I'm not sure he's doing that, but by leaving the framework so open, that leaves it open to be a thing that I, a, a game designer in the early 21st century, can still always say, because it doesn't impose a particular framework, or or perhaps the framework is detachable from the question, that that can still be a, a question that we ask ourselves in our own process of figuring out what is worth doing. So maybe he is more Socratic than Aristotelian in that respect. Yeah, I think definitely um, it is It is always worth asking what is uh, the Goethe questions or the, or the Robin questions, especially when faced with a, a, a piece of, of art or a piece of uh, any sort of created item that you are uh, expected to have a response to. And it will hopefully at least prevent you from having the same stupid opinions as everyone else. Uh, which will be a real uh, time saver, I think. And, and but for goodness sakes, if you have uh, wrong opinions, even after all of this, please speak them in a quiet tone of voice when you're in a theater lineup with me. Absolutely. Welcome once again to a segment of our segment non-pari, Ken's Time Machine, in which uh, Time Incorporated sends Ken back into the past to solve various and sundry problems and re-wrench the historical timeline into the ideal configuration as determined by the mysterious figures at Time Incorporated. Now, usually here on Ken's Time Machine, we talk about things that Ken uh, is considering doing with his time machine, but uh, this week we're going to look at something that Ken has already done for us, because in our original timeline, as I hope you no longer recall, the Cuban Missile Crisis led to the destruction of civilization as we know it. Now, of course, we remember it just as a, an exceptionally close call. So, Ken, when you went back to October 1962 to save the world, what exactly did you do? Well, it's interesting, because the in the final analysis, I didn't have to do a lot. Um... And that was something that, uh, did, uh, given the conditions of nuclear obliteration that uh, prevailed before, it was harder to tell that at the time. And so I was full of an awful lot of, of sort of big plans. Uh, initially, I wanted to go back and uh, 
get uh, Fidel Castro that Major League Baseball contract that he was so cruelly deprived of, but it turned out he was never that good a ball player. He couldn't have uh, even gotten a tryout, much less um, uh, gotten uh, signed and postponed the whole uh, shebang. And then I thought uh, maybe if we just uh, put a ho- another hole in the yacht, the Grandma, and he sinks on his way back to Cuba with his 81 communist buddies, uh, we sort of avoid the Cuban Missile Crisis that way. But uh, Batista's kind of a bad dude, and uh, the Time Incorporated uh, really uh, uh, wanted, um, uh, they, they had a lot of property in the, in the Wynn Corporation. They, they wanted to mob out of Vegas, so there was some knock-on things that got um, uh, bounced. Then my theory was, let's simply go back, let's convince um, uh, Mayor Daley to back Adlai Stevenson early in the uh, 1960 Democratic primary, so that Adlai Stevenson steps in the final version of history, as uh, I'm sure everyone knows because of the constant fascination with Adlai Stevenson that grips this land even today. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he got in only the week before the Democratic National Convention and managed to screw up his uh, third attempt at running for president even more gloriously than he did his first two. But I think that with Mayor Daley backing him initially, he would have uh, gotten in. He had a lot of support from the li- liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and he would have been buried by Richard Nixon in 1960. And Richard Nixon certainly would not have engaged in the sort of um, uh, ridiculous uh, brinksmanship that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And at the very least, he would have invaded Cuba in 1961 without faffing around with the Bay of Pigs. But then Nixon gets assassinated in 1963 by Lee Harvey Oswald, who's a communist, and that turns out to have a lot of bad knock-on effects, which, you know, like I need to tell you. So that one gets bounced. So finally, what it comes down to is in, in Time Incorporated, it is, it is a legendary case because it basically just goes back uh, getting into the White House and getting John F. Kennedy drunk, which turns out not to be that hard. Uh, you know, bring a bottle of Irish whiskey and at the time, fresh-faced Time Incorporated agent Tara Reid, uh, <laughs> who, who at that time was a, um, a promising young actress and before her 50 or 100 later missions for Time Incorporated left her the terror read we know today in our history. I have to say that that uh, she's taken a great hit for the integrity well, of the time she, stream. She did what she could, man. I mean, if you could have seen her back in the day. But it was just a matter of getting Kennedy to back down and take the U.S. missiles out of Turkey. A lot, a lot of people don't understand that, that the real uh, solution to the crisis was that uh, Kennedy agreed on the down low to remove intermediate-range ballistic missiles from Turkey they were Jupiters, um, and we had deployed them to Turkey in um, the early, you know earlier in uh, Kennedy's administration in 1961. Uh, these are missiles that could hit Moscow from you know 90 miles off its shore. Blah blah blah. And uh, the deployment of missiles into Cuba was a Soviet uh, response to that ploy. The Cuban Missile Crisis was averted basically when Kennedy put those missiles back on the table uh, and. The, the, the famous um, uh, game-changer plan of responding to Khrushchev's earlier memo instead of his later, more hardline memo was actually just because he was still uh, a little hammered, and I think he just got the memos mixed up. Uh, I wasn't there anymore. I had other fish to fry keeping Curtis LeMay from ordering the bombers to go anyway. But, yeah, it turns out that, you know, getting a Kennedy drunk, not exactly the biggest challenge I've ever faced in the time stream. I mean, there was that mission when... They sent Jack Nicholas back to sink a two-foot putt for King James I, <laughs> but that may be the only easier mission that uh, Time Incorporated ever did. Th- that was just a weird drunken bad. I don't really recall what the point of that was, frankly. 
Um, so uh, what surprised you about uh, uh, Curtis LeMay when you uh, uh, met him and had to persuade him in person? Well, I think that um, a lot of people paint uh, Curtis LeMay as this sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, crazy uh, mad bomber type guy. And, uh, you know, he was he was a guy who'd been sort of uh, shaped by the war on Japan. He'd been shaped by Pearl Harbor in a, in a way that, you know, ideally one would like our military to be shaped. Uh, resolving never again to be caught by surprise, never again allowing American uh, soil to be uh, attacked, uh, and in general, a, a real positive guy. But the trouble, of course, is that the uh, preemptive assault strategy pretty much went out the window once the ICBM was invented. And uh, the real uh, sort of, you know... Um, the bonding moment came when we both agreed that if Eisenhower had just uh, ordered the missiles to fly over uh, Hungary, we could have avoided all of this. Uh, we probably would have killed fewer people in that nuclear war than uh, uh, the Soviets and Mao managed to kill in the next uh, 40 years anyway. So there you go. But uh, it was it was that sort of more in sorrow than in anger uh, conversation that I guess got him uh, to climb down out of the um, uh, DEFCON. And, and and having softened Kennedy up with uh, uh, single malt and Tara Reid, uh, what was your uh, pitch to him to get him to uh, uh, concede those uh, missiles? In the uh, uh, sort of post-Prandial or post-Wisgiel uh, haze, uh, it, simply a matter of explaining to uh, the president that the uh, course he had set himself on was going to lead to certain disaster, that, the, uh, that I had uh, sure knowledge of uh, the Khrushchev's agenda, uh, Castro's agenda, that uh, the uh, Soviets had a hundred um, uh, tactical nuclear weapons that had been smuggled into Cuba without uh, the United States even knowing about it, that there was a uh, chance, even if a successful invasion had been mounted at that point, of a long-term nuclear terrorism uh, working out of uh, Castro sympathizers around the Caribbean, plenty of places uh, to hide a, a tactical nuclear weapon. Uh, it would have involved Castro taking them away from the Soviets, but again, in a situation where we destroyed some number of Soviet battleships, uh, it might have been a lot easier for Khrushchev to have uh, been argued around into allowing Castro to have them. And indeed, even in our history, the uh, Soviet general who was sent uh, to turn those nuclear weapons over to Castro, disobeyed his orders and took them away from Castro after meeting Castro. And it was it was a number of uh, sort of convincing revelations of, of that ilk that talked JFK into sort of going along with the plan. His real holdout was that no one should know that he'd back down to end the crisis, which uh, I thought would be the real sticking point, but apparently the Politburo was nervous enough about the fact that they would be obliterated and we would merely be critically wounded that they were willing to go along with that. So, uh, you know, lucky break uh, in a lot of ways, but in a lot of other ways, it was a fairly foregone conclusion. Now, even in our timeline, uh, of course, it was an exceptionally close call. And would you argue that it was inevitable at some point that the limits of the uh, nuclear deterrence had to be tested in that way, that eventually there was going to have to be a crisis where the whole question, you know, of uh, where the Curtis LeMays would have to realize that things had changed and that we uh, really would have to come up to the brink at some point uh, to resolve the 
strategic meaning of the nuclear age. I, I think that logically, when you have an expansionist, revanchist power that has the capacity to, uh, to threaten a nuclear war, you find yourself having to enforce deterrence one way or the other. And having chosen not to enforce deterrence when we were functionally invulnerable, we pretty much were going to have something like this crop up. And the fact that we had it crop up, you know, on, on the strongest imaginable playing ground for the United States is really a stroke of luck. I mean, given that it could have cropped up in Vietnam, you know, had the, the Cuban Missile Crisis not eventuated, or in uh, the, the Straits of Taiwan after the Chinese uh, got nuclear weapons. There's all manner of, of possibilities. Uh, use of nuclear weapons is still, you know, formally part of the United States doctrine, and we've never abandoned first use. And obviously, uh, you know, there are, there are nations like North Korea who don't have any doctrine besides use nuclear weapons. So the, the nature of both nuclear weapons and the nature of expansion-minded uh, revanchist powers pretty much argues that there's going to be some sort of pressure test and the fact that it happened, as I say, on the st strongest imaginable circumstances for us, c kind of a lucky break. Uh, it certainly could have happened in Berlin, or it could have happened uh, in Southeast Asia, where there were a lot more stakeholders than just us and the Russians. And uh, also lucky in this instance that, uh, once again, a pivotal historical figure uh, shared your taste for uh, beverages. Yes, well, uh, there's one. Uh, there are a number of reasons that I was hired by... Uh, Time Incorporated, but I suspect that was one of them. And on that note, we will uh, exit the whirring, sparkling vortex of Ken's time machine and conclude yet another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Drive Through RPG. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, where you can leave quibbles and quarrels at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. 